Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's founding president. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. To that end, the Academy launched our first major public action called the Safe Energy Project in late 2012. We have a major announcement about the impact of of our work at the top of today's show. After that update, we're going to discuss the macroeconomic outlook for the U.S. and global economy with a very important prediction about the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel economy. In the lightning round today, Ronaldo will talk about the Academy's market outlook for 2014, including interest rates, real estate, and the price of commodities. And at the end of the show, we'll also talk about the life and death of Nelson Mandela. So, Ronaldo, let's get started with the great news on the Safe Energy Project. Oh, Ronaldo, I'm going to introduce you again. Ronaldo, let's get started with the uh, great news on the Safe Energy Project. Can you hear me now, Matt? There you are. Okay, great. So, uh, thanks, Matt. And um, if, if I need to volume adjust, let me know. This is a new headset today. Um, good. good. Okay, so the, the, um, the Safe Energy Project. You're correct that the Safe Energy Project by that name was launched late in 2012, uh, meaning the third quarter of 2012. It was, however, a direct outgrowth of our continuing energy task force, which has been in operation now for more than 15 years. In fact, uh, I hope that uh, Jim Cusimano over in Prague, who was the chairman of that task force for many years and a co-author with Jerry Brown and I on Freedom from East Oil, is listening to this show because he, along with uh, myself and a few others, when we started this work more than 15 years ago, had no way of knowing where it would end up. Jerry Brown, on the other hand, and I started working together way back in before the 90s, actually, and we wrote our first book in 1997, which was published as a, to- a college textbook uh, under Simon & Schuster's label um, and back in 1997 on nuclear. So nuclear has been a very interesting focus of mine and of the Academy, as has alternative energy generally. Well, the Safe Energy Project was a launch of those two strands of activity in the form of a project that would, we hope, convert California, the state of California, to become literally fossil and nuclear-free within 10 years or less. In other words, we think we can move this thing forward. And there's going to be a hearing, set of hearings in 2014 where we will be participating on behalf of the public, the ratepayers of California. And so we needed a vehicle to begin that process, and we also wanted to take an active hand in trying to shut down San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant, which is the second of the two remaining nuclear power plants left in California. We entered that, um, that fight for two reasons, and, and it's, kind of inst- it's very important because we in the academy had never before taken on a cause like that and actually gone to battle, as it were, as a representative of the people of any state or country. But we felt we could not avoid this for two reasons. Because of our, our work in energy and because of our work on nuclear, what we knew was that the nuclear power plant was not necessary, that in fact the state of California had more power than it needed, even after you take into account multiple levels of reserves, had more power than it needed without either San Onofre or the remaining power plant, Diablo Canyon. So we went into it for two reasons. One, the health reasons. We knew that San Onofre was creating extraordinarily high toxic level, meaning death, of humans from the emission of strontium-90, as is Diablo Canyon. 
So for health reasons, and because we came to find out that there was a faulty set of components in that plant, which would likely ex- expose the people who live in Orange County to elevated levels of radioactive isotopes in the air, for health reasons and because the economics were crazy, we said, let's go see if we can close that plant, San Onofre. We linked up with a number of really prominent environmental groups, but our most close, our closest working ally was Friends of the Earth. And together with them, we were successful, and on June 7th of 2013, that plant was closed, and it was closed for economic reasons. And I stress that, and health reasons both. But I stress that because we were the only business group, Matt, that had anything to do with it. And we're the only business group still fighting to get the money back that Southern California Edison has been charging Californians every day, even though the plant hasn't produced any power since January 2012. So we've been fighting away. It's been a tremendous battle. Uh, I think the Academy right now has probably got over $300,000 invested in the fight to get money back. But it's already starting to pay dividends. Last week, a preliminary decision came out from the Public Utilities Commission, whereby they agreed to give $94 million back to the ratepayers in California. Now, $94 million sounds like a lot of money, and frankly, we only spent three hundred grand. we are the only business group fighting, and to get $94 million back is a pretty good return on our investment. However, yeah. by the way, that $94 does not go to us, right? That goes to the people. But we believe that's a fraction of the billion dollars we want back. So we continue to fight. In fact, I was just yesterday meeting with the president of California Public Utilities Commission, who's in charge of this, and, and making the case for why a dramatic increase in the refund should occur. Thank you very much for the $94 million. It's the least you can do. We're looking for a billion dollars, and we believe that the record is so bad in this case where the public has been charged that it fails basic due process standards, meaning if the commission doesn't do the right thing, and by the way, I think it may, if the commission doesn't do the right thing, the California Supreme Court will because that's where we're going next. So we're not going to drop this fight uh, for over a billion dollars that's been improperly charged the people of the state of California. Number two, we've heard what Edison wants to charge us to mothball that plant, and it's egregious and crazy. It's, uh, you know, it's $2 billion higher than it should be. We're going to try and stop that. And we're demanding, as I did yesterday in the president's office, the entire, Diablo, uh, the entire nuclear facility at San Onofre literally is no longer ever going to produce power. So what is it? It's a storage facility for spent nuclear fuel rods. We have yet to see what they're going to charge us for that, and they want to pretend like they should keep charging us the $87 million a month that we've been paying to get electricity. So for a whole bunch of reasons, I don't want to go into it. It's a fascinating case. I hope people ask me questions about it. But the momentum of that decision in San Onofre was exciting and led to a lunch we decided to throw together here in Santa Barbara. And we never, the Academy has never done a professional like attempt to raise funds or raise awareness in our home city of Santa Barbara, frankly, anywhere else in the world in 26 years, 27 years. It's not what we've been doing. So since it was the first time we'd ever taken a public cause on, close a nuclear power plant and change the political and economic and technical structure of energy in California, that's our cause, then we thought, okay, maybe we should start talking to the people and get them to hear what we've got to say, and maybe we can convince them they should join in this battle. And what I want to share with the listeners, because it was my first time I've ever done this, we put together a lunch that lasted one hour and ten minutes flat. We thought we could get maybe 100 people there if we really worked on very little notice with a reasonable amount of effort but not breaking our backs. 220 people showed up, way more than we had estimated we would get. And not only that, 
but they pledged significant resources and gave us cash that day to help us continue the fight. So we're still in a deficit position. We raised, candidly, we raised about $120,000 that day, which is a fraction of what we spent, probably a third of what we spent so far. However, just giving us that much additional fuel in our tank is going to permit us to stay in the battle. We need to somehow figure out how to raise the next two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, which we're working on, so we can keep this battle going till it ends. And the only end I can see is the following three things. One, San Onofre not only stays closed, we get a huge amount of money back, and we get a reasonable proposal for what to do with that rock instead of trying to squeeze blood from the stone called San Onofre. Number two, it's going to lead to our creating a permanent monitoring of the toxicity of radioactive isotopes on the beaches of California here in Santa Barbara so that we have a, a yardstick to measure how much damage Fukushima is literally doing to the states in the United States all the way across the Pacific Ocean. For those, I think in the last show I mentioned that bluefin tuna uh, are now all bluefin tuna caught off of California waters, wa- Oregon waters, Washington waters, are showing detectable levels of radiation from Fukushima. The American Medical Association has now recommended three weeks ago or four weeks ago that every single bluefin tuna, in fact, they believe all fish caught off the California coast, should be monitored for public safety. That's the American Medical Association, not me saying that. So we want to do the second thing is Fukushima damage. How bad is it, even though it's the big Pacific Ocean? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of gallons of radioactive water are going into the Pacific Ocean. We've got to stop that. The Fukushima thing is crazy that they're allowed to try and clean it up with a International supervision makes no sense at all. And we believe when we start to accumulate the data, which we've just put that in place this week to start doing, we believe that we'll have the data to convince the U.S. government that he has got to take a position on Fukushima. In fact, the entire international community has to. The third factor that we're after is, of course, closing Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant, which we believe emits, and we know, factually, we knew and we know emits highly toxic, meaning carcinogenic levels, strontium-90 to the people who live nearby, including people sitting here in in my office with me in Santa Barbara, California. So we want to close those three. And then last but not least, we have a big surprise coming for 2014 where we're going to tell people how we can convert first the state of California, then the American country, and then the world off of fossil fuels. Really excited about that. Stay tuned about what we're going to do in 2014. It's the biggest project the Academy's taken on in 27 years, and I'm confident we're going to be successful. So please stay tuned so we can tell you what's going to happen to rid California of all fossil fuels within 10 years or less if the people of the state choose to do so, and do it in a way that does not increase the price of energy to the ratepayers at home. How's that for a deal? If we can eliminate all the carbon fuels and all the nuclear fuels in California, ask yourself this, and we can do it at no additional cost to the ratepayers, you know, except for inflation, but no additional cost to the ratepayers. How many of you listening to me would want to see California, a bellwether state, do that? I believe the answer is 100% of you listening to me want to see us do that. And that's what we're going to go do. So yeah. give us some support. Stay tuned. In 2014, it, it's going to be a huge year for the transition away from fossil fuels. Later on the show, we'll talk about how the fossil fuel industry is collapsing under the weight of some pretty significant policy changes here in the U.S. Uh, but, Ronaldo, first I want to talk about an FDA announcement that they're going to recommend curtailing the insane practice of using antibiotics in otherwise healthy livestock animals to speed their growth. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. Thanks, Matt. Uh, yesterday, the FDA announced that the beginning of rulemaking, and, and well, actually rules, to restrict the... Um, the um, 
uh, what do you call it, the, the use of antibiotics, what they're calling the indiscriminate use of antibiotics, actually. Um, and the, the reason that's so important is people don't realize that 23,000 Americans every year die because they contract viruses or bacteriological infections, rather, which the, um, uh, which the uh, resistant bacteria are resistant because of the, the use of antibiotics in our chickens primarily, but also in all, all sorts of other farm animals. So by using antibiotics indiscriminately, which we've been doing in this country now for many decades, what we're really doing is we're killing 23,000 Americans a year. And by the way, too many a year get sick and require hospitalization to deal with resistant strains of bacteria. So the idea that the FDA finally, after decades of being told about this problem, is finally moving on it is one of the most encouraging signs I can think of that the government's finally coming to its senses. Now, let me put one other thing in context. I have been telling people for at least a decade now it is safer to eat beef that's grass-fed than it is to eat chicken raised conventionally, even though beef has much more cholesterol and therefore is worse for your heart. Of course, buffalo, organic buffalo, is my favorite food in that category. But the key issue for today is I am looking forward to the day when people can safely order chicken again in a normal restaurant, not worry about whether it's organic, because the antibiotics won't be in them, and therefore we won't be building up resistance to very deadly strains of bacteria. Last point. The reason why we've been doing it, particularly the chickens, but the other species of, of uh, domesticated animals as well, is because we wanted to be able to grow so many chickens in such a small space that they literally would die from infection because the coops were so small that, and inhumane, candidly. So PETA was right about this one. Uh, they were so small that there was no way the chickens could survive unless we gave massive doses of antibiotic. By the way, we do the same thing for what's called milk-fed veal. The milk they're feeding it is a liquid stream of antibiotics because the, the, the little calf that's killed for milk-fed beef is actually kept in a pen that's so small it can't even turn around in it. And so what they feed it on is a liquid diet, which is heavily, um, heavily laced with antibiotics. So those practices are going to stop finally, and people will be able to get the kind of quality food that they should be able to get but can't today because when you go to any restaurant, if it isn't organic, you really shouldn't be eating the chicken, candidly. And I've been saying that for a decade. This is now going to turn around. So hopefully, um, hopefully we've, at the beginning of a lot of other positive actions the government will take. And I know in the, in the economics part of today's conversation, we're going to talk about the Ryan-Pat Murray deal. But, but, but it's beginning to look like finally the United States government, after a period of being just crazy, is starting to come to its senses and do things that make sense, are good for business and good for society. Yeah. Well, another another uh, piece of interesting and important news uh, from this week is that J.P. Morgan is going to admit liability in the Bernie Madoff scandal. Um, can you talk about that for a second? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, anybody listening to this show for the last couple of years knows that I have long excoriated Jamie Dimon, the CEO of, of J.P. Morgan, uh, I've always thought of him as the biggest crook on Wall Street, that he hasn't gone to jail, I think, is, a, is, a, is an indictment, if you will, of the criminal process in this country, because he should have by now. Uh, as you recall, J.P. Morgan, uh, up until two years ago, was the most powerful bank on Wall Street. Uh, Jamie Dimon was clearly the most powerful banker on Wall Street and led the opposition to Obama, led the opposition to banking reform, 
led the opposition to Elizabeth Warren's uh, Consumer Protection Agency, led the opposition to Elizabeth Warren getting appointed. Basically, their lobbyists had such a stranglehold over the U.S. government, a, he was the big stumbling block. I said then, and I get down to the benefit of history, I can look back and say I was right, I said then, the man's a criminal. He's running a criminal organization. You shouldn't do business with him. And one day the world will find out just how bad Jamie Dimon is and how bad Morgan Stanley is. I mean, uh, J.P. Morgan, excuse me, Morgan Stanley, different company, J.P. Morgan. Well, uh, Jamie Dimon's company has now been the subject of the largest fine in the history of the world for a financial institution, $13 billion, for what it did for the fraud it committed, frankly, in the housing bubble. And it's going to get hit with another couple of billion dollars on that at least before all the smoke clears. And there's the possibility of a criminal investigation by the states, which I certainly hope goes forward. In addition, just yesterday, they signaled that they are going to admit to a criminal, uh, that, they, they, that they acted criminally. They're going to admit in open court. They're going to do this so that none of their executives have to go to jail. They cut a deal with the Justice Department. And it has to do with the Madoff, the Bernie Madoff scandal. So... Not only were they laundering money for Bernie Madoff for years, making huge profits off it, but even after it started to surface that Bernie Madoff wasn't playing straight, they kept doing it. So not only were they guilty from the very beginning, but they stayed, got even guiltier as time went on. Well, the fine they're going to pay in that case, the Bernie Madoff case, is $2 billion on top of the 13 already we talked about, and on top of other fines I see coming in the future. Plus, they're going to admit to criminal liability, meaning that when I called Jamie Dimon, basically a criminal on Wall Street, the biggest criminal on Wall Street, and I said his organization was a criminal organization, it turns out I was right, and they're going to have to admit it in public. I'm sorry that nobody from J.P. Morgan is going to go to jail, because I think there's a moral hazard when you let people do what they did, and all they do is get their hands slapped and have to give back, in this case now, $15 billion, because $15 billion, to put it in perspective, folks, is less than the profit they make in five months. So it's not like the end of the world for them, but it's the beginning of the end of their lobbying power in Washington, D.C., because now the regulators are going to look at J.P. Morgan and Jamie Dimon and his lobbyists in a whole different way, and they're going to go, wait a minute, you people are here to represent a criminal enterprise. We're supposed to be protecting the American public. We better do a better job. I, I believe banking regulation will now be able to improve because Jamie Dimon has had such a fall, and this is enormously productive and positive information because, as my listeners know, we have not really cleaned up since the crash. We were starting to, and the banking lobby stopped it. So we still do not have a tight Volcker rule in place, starting to get there, but not in place tight. We don't have derivatives regulated properly. They've been growing again. We don't have the kind of regulation of the financial markets on the global scene anywhere near where it needs to be. Now, we did do some good things. We increased the Tier 1 to Tier 3 capital requirements, so banks are better able to handle a hit now. We've begun to look at the issue of too big to fail, but we haven't put it into effect, and we should. We've begun to, 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 to start to put a, uh, at least a thin wall between what banks do in their deposit-carrying capacity and what they do with their risk capital, but those are yet really not fully enforceable and not really effective. And we have not yet done what we need to do on derivatives because we keep getting stopped by the lobby. So there's a lot of good things we did in forcing the capital to increase. Uh, we've given a lot of good warnings. We've said we're going to hold you guys accountable. But at the end of the day, we have not finished the job that we know we had to do to prevent another crisis like 2008. 
Okay. I'm hoping that this story will lead us to that. Well, so that's good news uh, on one front. Uh, the, the change has been incremental, um, and the regulations haven't been strong enough, I agree. But we've also seen some progress on the budget side in Congress, shockingly. Uh, you know, progress had stalled so much so that the government shut down. But now it looks like there's, there's a, uh, a real budget deal, a bipartisan budget deal that's going to pass and will have huge implications for a, a range of things next year, including interest rates, uh, the, the action by the Fed, and hopefully massive improvements in the unemployment rate. Uh, what, what do you see coming up out of this budget deal? Okay, first of all, I think this is the most important topic in the world right now, and I'm telling that to our listeners overseas. What this marks is an enormous sea change in the direction of the Republican Party of the United States. What Paul Ryan, who basically wants to run for president as a conservative, and what John Boehner wants to do, which is to pretend that he is a conservative, what they're doing is they're saying, we've had it with the Tea Party. People should have seen, hopefully, what Boehner said yesterday when he was asked by a CBS reporter, um, Mr. Boehner, what about the very conservative groups that are very critical of this deal? He said, are you talking about the groups which issued their, which, which issued their condemnation of this deal before we even released what the deal was? And the reporter, and Cordes, smiled and said, yes, I guess I am. He said, well... Shouldn't you have to wait to read it before you can criticize it? I think when you criticize it before you read it, it means that you really didn't criticize what we said. You criticized what you were afraid of. And what Boehner is declaring here is a split in the Republican Party, which has been building for at least a year now. And over the shutdown, it came to a head. And what the mainstream of the Republican Party now knows is that they cannot let the party be controlled by the Tea Party, which is this whacked-out version of the right wing that is incapable of governing, which was tying America up into knots. Now, and that's, why is that important for the global economy? So Paul Ryan, congressman, head of the Budget Committee of the House, Patty Murray, senator, head of the Budget Committee in the Senate, they've been huddled for three months trying to come up with a way to avoid the next sequester, which would have been in January, and to avoid the next debt ceiling crisis, which is not fully avoided by this bill, by the way, for uh, next October. So what they did, which I think is really, uh, really brilliant, is they said, okay, where do we come out where neither one of us has to violate principles we can't run on, but we come and find as much common domain or common territory as possible? They did that with this bill. Is it a perfect bill? No. There's many things about it that are wrong. And by the way, I think the biggest thing wrong with it is that we're going to let long-term unemployment benefits stop in January. That's a huge problem. It's bad for the economy. It's going to put a depressing effect on spending. It's going to be more homeless. It's going to be more home foreclosures. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's going to be a lot of things. But in the process of reaching this agreement, Boehner, Ryan, and the conservative leadership of the House have decided that they have to let America be governed. They can't keep trying to block it to destroy the economy so they can beat Obama. That, they finally surrendered on that, on that quest. And now what they're doing, because I think of the traditional, heavily financially oriented Republican Party stalwarts and the large corporations that have had enough of this craziness, I think what you're seeing is the beginning of a healing of the American economy in a substantial way. Uh, I will talk about that more later in the show. But what's important is, from this 
announcement and from the reaction of both the arch-conservative Tea Party crazies like the the Heritage um, Action Fund and the uh, other members of the Tea Party right, 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 right wing, those that pushback now articulated by Boehner and Ryan and beginning to be articulated by individual congressmen after they were briefed by Ryan yesterday means that the Republicans are going to try to become a normal party again and they're going to rein in the insane influence that the Tea Party has had. When you put that together with the change of the filibuster rule in the Senate that happened two weeks ago, which means the Senate can now be unlocked to work, finally the American government is like the, the padlocks are being released. And what people need to know is the growth we have sustained this year in, the, in spite of shutdowns, in spite of uh, sequesters that hit twice now, in spite of crazy budgeting, in spite of crazy politics, in spite of all sorts of, quote, filibusters that were really just uh, objections raised, Carter never even took to the Senate floor, in spite of all of that, the American economy is going to generate about a 2.5% GDP growth this year. Now, it's going to be worse in the fourth quarter. And by the way, I want to flag something for people. More companies in the last month have given warnings to the stock market that their earnings will be below original forecast for the year. In fact, the ratio of those warnings is one of the all-time high numbers it's ever been. It's like 10 to 1. So for every company saying we're going to do a little better than we thought, 10 companies are saying we're going to do worse. In the face of that downgrading of expectations, the market rose today. And the reason the market rose today is because when you unlock, when you take the padlocks, or the handcuffs, if you will, off of the House, and you allow bills to come to the floor, which a majority of congressmen can then support, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, you give the majority vote back to the people of the United States of America, and you permit government to govern. When you take the silly filibuster rule away, you allow the Senate to become effective. When both of those become effective, you allow the presidency to become more effective as an executive. And then when you add in a really great new commissioner, the head of the, the, the Fed, which is Janet Yellen, who's going to replace Bernanke. I think Bernanke's done a good job for a very tough assignment. When you bring someone like Janet Yellen in, who understands the pain of unemployment as much as she fears the rise of inflation, so you mean you've got a Fed coming that's going to be very careful not to remove stimulus too fast. Wall Street's saying, hmm, fourth quarter earnings not going to be good, which is true for a whole bunch of companies. But in 2014, looks like it could be a banner year, and we'll talk more about that later in the show, right? Yeah, so that's really important. Um, I want to I want to get to another point though here in the in the news section because it looks like uh, your prediction here is there's a trend in oil prices that signals the end, the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, let's and let's break this into two subjects. First subject is why should we care? whether we have a fossil fuel, planetary fuel system or not, based on fossil fuels. Why should we care? Two reasons. Number one, we're baking the planet, as everybody knows, from a climate change point of view. We're baking the planet, right? So from an environmental perspective, having a fossil fuel economy any further into the future is a non-survivable strategy for human society. I want to repeat, it's a non-survivable strategy for human society. Does that mean every person on the earth will die from it? No, but the vast majority will. So it's, it's, it's not even a question of sustainable. It, 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 it's, it's not even an acceptable potential 
path or direction. The Earth will be here 200 years from today. There may not be a whole lot of humans on it because of what we're doing to cook the planet. So we have an environmental reason that's critical, and I think everybody's coming around to climate change. And even though I believe there was only 68% of the people in the city of New York thought climate change was real before Sandy, I understand it's now 98%. In other words, the experience people are having of abnormal weather, both colder colds, higher, higher deposits of snow and rain, warmer warms, forest fires in the West, all these factors together, we know climate change is creating, and it's a long conversation we've had with, in this show over many, uh, over many shows, and we'll continue to have. So that's one reason to be getting off of carbon fuels. Here's the other reason that nobody seems to focus on but us. What the carbon fuels do, because they're based on the concept of scarcity. In other words, because you have something that's in the ground that costs a lot to get up, whether it's oil or coal or natural gas, that scarcity, and even in the case of fracking, natural gas is still scarce. By the way, look at the price of natural gas has risen in both of the last two months in America. Okay, that scarcity, meaning I've got it, you have to pay for it, gives power to the person that controls the scarce resource. And then that person or that company, in this case ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, Chevron, the whole bunch of them, gouge society because the society needs that scarce commodity, fossil fuels, in order to function. We're, we're, we're addicted to fossil fuels. As we said in our last book eight years ago, Freedom from Mini Soil, America has a fossil fuel addiction. That addiction extracts, just like selling crack to an addict extracts their cash, our oil addiction, our, our carbon fuel addiction has been extracting so much wealth from the economy globally, we stopped paying attention to it because we thought it was normal. So when you see, and I want people to start looking, look at the profits that are declared by each of the major oil companies. Watch them. It will stagger you what they get in the way of profits, quote-unquote. And remember, they only report profits after they've deducted egregiously high executive salaries, egregiously high R&D budgets, egregiously high fleets of private jets to flit around the countryside, egregious dollars spent on lobbying, and even more egregious dollars spent on lawyers to control the the political situation. So when you take all that egregious spending and you get to deduct it before you calculate your profit, and you still have profits that are so high as to be unconscionable, meaning whenever a company makes that kind of profit, it means they're doing something to break the rules. When, you, when you're talking about profits of the size of the major oil companies, you're talking about monopoly profits. And, and, and technically in the oil industry, what they call the oil industry is a shared oligopoly, meaning it's multiple suppliers who act in concert to extract monopoly prices from the public. That's what's been going on. Okay. So if the fossil fuel era is to end, what it means is it's going to give us an injection. Well, it, it stops sucking the lifeblood of commerce out of the country, first in the U.S., ultimately overseas. And that gives us the ability to make a, an economy that grows much faster and can raise many more people from poverty into middle class and above. So what is it that's happening that causes me to say for the first time I think the system, this shared oligopoly, is about to break, or in fact is breaking. And what it is, and I want people to start watching these numbers, and if you don't want to watch them yourself, tune into the show and we'll keep telling you what they are. There is a historical ratio 
between the price of oil in America, which is identified, the benchmark price is called West Texas Intermediary Crude. Historically, price of that, that oil in Texas at most was eh, 5%, 3% different than the second benchmark in Europe, which is called Brent or North Sea Crude. So when those two prices are roughly the same, they're within 5% of each other, what it means is that the price of oil around the world is relatively stable, and everybody, no matter what country they're operating in, has the same win or loss if they're an oil company. When you start to have a split, when, when the price of oil in one part of the world starts to be disproportionately cheaper than it is anywhere else, it can only end in the more expensive oil having to come down in price. Let me give you an example. These are actual numbers. At the end of November of this year, West Texas crude was at $92.72 a barrel. Brent crude was at $107.79 a barrel. That's over 16% variation, meaning oil is 16% cheaper now in Texas than it is in London. That's an, non, that's an unsustainable crack in the, in the monolith of global oil pricing, and that crack will continue to get worse. Why? First of all, there's a lot more oil in the United States, and fracking, which we are very much against, has put natural gas in the position of replacing some oil. But more fundamentally what happened is when the government passed the CAFE fuel standards, which is what we advocated for eight years ago in our book, miraculously, exactly what we happened, in fact, what we said would happen happened even better, the consumption of oil in America has started to drop. The imports of oil from the Far East have plummeted. In fact, within a couple of years, I think they'll be zero. In fact, it could be as soon as 18 months from now. Because there's some months we actually go into, into neutral or positive territory. So what's happening is the American oil addiction has now begun to be healed. Fewer people are as addicted. We're buying cars that are smarter, that go further on a gallon of gas. So even though we're driving many more miles and we have many more cars, we're consuming less oil. As we do that, it's putting downward pressure on the price of oil in America. Now, they're trying to keep that price pressure up in Europe, and they're going to have a very tough time to do it. The Saudi Arabians are talking now about reducing the flow of oil to the global economy. The theory is, if they cut back on the oil, the amount of oil being pumped, then we'll have to pay more for oil everywhere, because the, the demand theoretically will stay the same, and the supply will go down. What they're not realizing is two things. One the demand is not going to stay steady. It's going to go down further because the fleet of cars on the road every year is being replaced by a more efficient fleet. And we haven't even begun to enter the era, which starts in 2005 in the United States, where we start to have fuel cell vehicles. So in addition to a tremendous development and growth of um, hybrids, so as you probably know, over 1 million, quite a bit, like 1,100,000 Priuses have been sold in the United States at this point. When that car came out 10, 12 years ago, everybody said oh, they might sell a few hundred, but a thousand or more, but it's not going to be a major play. Well, as everybody knows, Prius has become a, a, a game changer. Well, the Prius, relative to what's coming, the Prius getting about 45 miles to the gallon, is absolutely nowhere near as efficient as a fuel cell vehicle, which will be able to get conceivably as much as 75 to 100 miles a gallon. Uh, even better than that, 
when you use a um, a Volt, for example, a Chevrolet Volt, if you drive less than 50 miles a day, which most people do, your actual cost per mile, the amount of oil you consume will be zero. You have infinity mileage, and, and you're paying basically for kilowatts rather than for oil. So what's coming is a blend of, of power plants to replace the monopoly that used to be possessed by internal combustion engines, or ICEs. And that monopoly is going to be replaced by hybrids, which are a combination of gas and electric through batteries, pure batteries like Tesla, batteries like in the Volt, which have a small little generator in the trunk, so if you want to go further than 50 miles, you turn on the generator, and it keeps your car going for 400 miles. And most of all, watch for a dramatic increase in hydrogen fuel celled uh, vehicles because they're the most efficient power plant known to man. There will be a delay after the initial commercial release of vehicles by Hyundai in 2015. However, that delay is only because we don't have enough refueling stations. As more hydrogen refueling stations get built around the country and around the world, fuel cell cars will take off and become, I would, I would suspect, within, I'm going to say within less than 20 years, you'll be seeing more fuel cell cars sold in the world, not just America, than internal combustion engines using conventional oil sources. And the ones that are left that use conventional oil sources will be ones that are so much more fuel efficient, you'll be seeing a minimum of 50 miles or more to the gallon as opposed to the 25-mile average they've got now. I could go on longer, but I, I don't want to lose people with, with how um, – with, with the details on this, what I really wanted to do was to get people aware of and conscious of this is a massive sea change. So I want to make two last points. Number one, because of the split in the price between Texas Intermediate and rent prices, you're going to see a drop overseas ultimately in the price per barrel that the oil companies can get. Huge geopolitical implications of that. For example, Russia is barely at a break-even budget right now. It cannot sustain Putin's society. His, his, his dictatorship cannot be sustained, which is what he sells at, drops below $100 a barrel. It's at 107 now. I don't think it's going up. The oil companies tell you that the price of oil is going to go up over time because the cost of recovering the oil is going up. I don't believe that's true because I believe what's going to happen is the efficiencies – of a switch to renewables that we're now in just at the earliest stages of are going to continue to depress prices globally of oil the way they've already depressed oil prices in the U.S. So that's why this is my prediction today is this split at the end of November is the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era on the planet Earth. It's got a long ways to go. We've got decades to get this thing fixed. But I've got to tell you something. This is, this is the shot heard around the world in the switch from fossil fuels to renewables because the marketplace is now telling us that the game is over for fossil fuels. They can't control it even with all their political muscle. And I believe the people in the United States are also going to now say, why are we paying subsidies to companies that make so much money? It's an embarrassment of riches. Second point and the final point is this. I believe when we look back on this era and we see how much money that no longer is getting sucked out of our pockets, we will stop and realize, oh, my God, the re one of the reasons we impoverished the middle class in America and we thought there wasn't enough for everybody was because we were coming from the belief that scarcity is our economy. And what I want to say is those days are over. 
This is an economy that's going to be built on abundance consciousness, which is what the Academy has always articulated. What I want to do in future shows is I want to speak to, and I hope I'll get lots of questions about this, what does it look like for me individually in a consciousness where abundance is the underpinning of the economy rather than scarcity? That, to me, is the most fun question we could talk about. And by the way, those who understand the answers to that question will not only be financially extremely successful, which they will be, but they'll also be the people who are capable then of telling their neighbors how we can treat each other in a totally different, loving, conscious way because we can create abundant social systems supported by an abundant energy system. Well, I want to summarize and do a little recap here because I think this is an incredibly positive outlook uh, so far. I mean, we've got the U.S. government doing the right thing. We've got, you know, the bipartisanship that is a relatively uh, complicated term, but the fact that it looks like the Republicans are coming around and are actually going to start leading again uh, and, and making policy that makes some sense for the country. And you've got oil prices uh, and and the pressures on the oil industry uh, creating a new abundance economy. I mean, we're looking at a really successful 2014 globally, potentially, Ronaldo. And uh, I want to make an announcement here for our audience that our podcast is actually going to be switching format. Um, one of our big focuses is sharing information our listeners need to help protect them uh, in, in, in times of instability and to help them ride the wave of abundance that we believe is coming. Um, the upswing in the market in, in early 2014, like you've talked about, could be significant, and pointing them towards the Sunrise Industries could be very helpful for their portfolio. So for the investors in the audience, Ronaldo, can you talk briefly about your outlook for early 2014 and tell them basically why they're going to want to subscribe to our new podcast next year? Yes, um, thanks for asking that. Um, so first of all, as most people know, I've been fairly upset with economic policy in the U.S. for the last couple of years, and particularly upset with the president for not being more aggressive in developing po uh, positions which will um, improve the chances that we can grow the middle class instead of destroy it, because in this economy, which is a consumer economy, growing the middle class is the name of the game. I don't think we're going to have time today to talk about China, although I want to at some point, Matt, in a future show, because it's becoming clear what the Chinese policy for the next 10 years will be. And when China sets policy, there's no opposition party to change it. So that becomes what happens. Uh, there's, they're going to be building their consumer economy. The U.S. as a growth engine for global uh, economic well-being is going to be restored in 2014. So it's not only it's going to lift us, it's going to lift a lot of other countries with us. Uh, I think the concerted action of China and the U.S. together is going to be a very good thing. The U.S. deficits are going to continue to come down. The U.S. approach to the amount of money we're going to save in health care over the next 20 years is going to be enormous. Uh, what we're going to save from fuel is going to be enormous. So there are a lot of turns and twists in the road. I, I don't want people to think, okay, gosh, it's over the party, let's start the party. No. What, for the first time in a number of years now, I can look out 12 months and I can say, okay, I think I'm pretty sure I know what the GDP of this country is going to be in 2014. I think I know what the level of inflation is going to be, at least for the first six months and probably for the whole year, 2014. I can predict with some accuracy now what the unemployment rate is going to be. And by the way, you're going to like the number. I can predict what the Fed will do because it's clear they've already made their statement. 
I can predict that easing is probably going to start in the first quarter of, uh, or the end of the first quarter of 2014. And then I can predict from all that where you should put your money and what to do with it. I think it's finally getting easier to do that. So I'm looking forward to the, those podcasts being a continuing economics education so that our listeners are equipped with the best financial information and the best um, editorial information that they could possibly require in order to outperform their expectations today of what they can do with their nest egg. People listening to me, many of them have 401Ks. Many of them have IRAs. Many of them have a small amount of savings. I want to create a way for those people to win at the same percentage increase in value that I experience as a sophisticated investor. I want to be able to, to distribute the tools of economic uh, improvement to everybody through those shows so they can benefit. And as everybody knows, we do this because if you were paying my daily rate, my hourly rate, which is pretty high, I would do it for you if you're a very wealthy person. Our job in the academy is to give the information to the least um, the least well-heeled listener of ours that they would get if they were a billionaire. I, I, that's what I'm doing. And I'm hoping that in these podcasts next year, people will turn in, they will, they will ask questions, they'll want to know about specific sectors of the economy. We'll be talking, like we do with the lightning round, about specific things. Um, I don't know how much time we've got for today, but I'm delighted. I can, I can riff today if you want on some of those lightning round issues. Or we can, you know, we can hold off and start doing it in January. But the key issue is, if you don't listen, you won't know. Right now, there, there's, this, there's this comment we made, we, we, we created in the Academy a number of years ago, a special series of lectures and classes at the Kellogg School of Business, one of the best business schools in the world. And the dean there asked me to name, to label what it was we were creating. And the name of the series of, uh, it was a five-day series of meetings, the name of it was Knowledge is Power. See, if you know what's coming, you can adapt to it and you can prosper and you can thrive. If you do not know what's coming, you're going to be a victim, and no one wants to be a victim. So I believe that it's time now for us to go weekly because so many things are happening so fast. I mean, look at this show. I mean, we, we decided, you know, in the last hour before we went on the air, what the heck we talk about today. And half of what I want to talk about, I'm not going to be able to talk about because we're out of time already. And that's because a month between shows is just too long. And, and I want people to know, for me to do a show weekly is an enormous personal sacrifice of my own time, of time with my family. It's, it's, it's an enormous sacrifice. But I really want to do it because I think that's my greatest contribution to my listeners is to be able to share this information. And all I want from them is one thing in return. Please tell your friends. Let's make this a giant army of informed citizens who can understand what's in their best interests, vote for it, invest in it, and benefit from it. That's the goal. All I ask is for you to spread the word. I'll take care of the heavy lifting. Yeah, and another point on the coming 2014 uh, economy, Ronaldo, that, that we mentioned was the outlook for the housing market, which I want to spend a little time on. Uh, there's news that foreclosures are down to their lowest level. Uh, why is this happening, and how do you think it's going to affect the markets next year? Okay, first of all, it's down because the the the, the housing market has been whipsawed first by a bubble which drove prices up, then by an explosion, a collapse, an implosion, which drove prices way too low. The number of people living in America has actually increased during all the period of time since 2008. 
So people need to live somewhere. Where do they go to live? Well, what happened was a lot of, of financial speculators entered the market about two years ago and started buying homes at deeply depressed prices that were foreclosed because they correctly calculated if they owned that home and rented it, they would get more money back than their, for their capital than in investing in other ways. So very large funds were put together where literally tens of thousands of homes were acquired, and particularly acquired in those areas where real estate took the worst hit, say Phoenix, for example. What's happened is that the economy now has leveled out, and, and despite all the padlocks that were put on it, the economy has been slowly but steadily getting stronger. As a result, the number of foreclosures has dropped to the lowest level since probably 2006, I'm guessing. And those foreclosures mean that people are now not being thrown out of their houses. In addition, the price of housing, which went way up in certain markets, like Phoenix, when private equity players came in and bought tons of houses to rent, those private equity players don't have the same margin anymore because the price of houses have gone back up. So they've shot up in some markets by as much as 20 22% year over year, Phoenix being the example. At this point, the market's starting to level out in all those highly depressed and now highly recovering markets because now the price of housing, and by the way, on a national basis, the price of housing is still not at the peak where it was in 2007. Getting closer. In some places like Phoenix, it'll never get there, in my humble opinion. I mean, it's it, it, not an inflation-adjusted dollars, it won't. So what you've got is you've got, a, you've got a, a market that is now starting to respond to conventional housing costs. So the numbers you want to look at to understand the housing market is how many new starts are occurring, how many resales are occurring, how fast is the price of housing growing. In each of those categories, number of starts is up this year over last year, but only slightly, and nowhere near as up as big as the, the jump in the prior year to that. So it's leveling off. It's becoming a more normalized new starts. You're getting uh, um, uh, resales from existing housing stock is moving up nicely, but at a rational, sustainable pace. You've got appreciation of homes in, in multi-unit dwellings in markets like San Francisco, where they're dramatically appreciating, but that's because San Francisco has a shortage of housing for the number of businesses located there. So that's an anomalous market. When you look at places like Los Angeles, where there's lots of housing available still, it's gone up dramatically, but now it's starting to level off, and you're not going to see the huge jumps in house prices in L.A. in 2014 that you saw, I don't think, and you saw in 2013. Will you see gains in house prices? Yes, because the economy is going to go up in 2014. More people will want to own in 2014. But, you, but we aren't going to see this incredible whipsaw effect, this whiplash effect where it went way, way up, it crashed way, way down, and then went way back up quickly to, to restabilize. We're now in a stabilized housing market. So now if you think you want to live in a home in a particular area for a number of years, it's a safe thing to invest your money in owning a home because the likelihood that that home will go up in value over the next 10 years is greater than that it will go down. You, there are certain continuing tax-deductible benefits, i.e. interest, to owning a home. And last but not least, the uh, value of that home is going to increasingly be accepted as collateral at a bank. So the idea of owning a home rather than renting it will come to be decreasingly attractive. But the rate in home price increase, although it will continue to go up, won't be at exaggerated rates of speculation and the number of homes turning over will be normal. It won't be at the exaggerated rates of dramatic foreclosures. There's one caveat I mentioned at the beginning of the show. We got 1.3 million people on long-term unemployment that is going to end in January, which I think is morally 
offensive, frankly. How can you take the people who are most vulnerable, who have been out of work the longest, who have been trying to find work, because it's a condition of them getting unemployment that they have to continue to look for work and try and find it. So how do you take those people and tell them you're going to cut them off? Well, a certain portion of those people, and that's morally offensive to me, a certain percentage of those people own homes, and clearly they're going to lose those homes. So the foreclosure rate in January, February, March could start to go up just from that one factor. Hmm. However, offsetting that foreclosure rate increase will be a decrease in foreclosures because the economy is healing and more people are working. So my net-net my prediction is foreclosure rates will continue to drop in 2014, not as fast as they dropped in the last six months, but they will continue to drop, even though we'll have a slight bump from the 1 million three long-term unemployed. And I hope the Democrats go back to Congress in January with a bill specifically targeted for long-term unemployment and give it a shot at getting it through. Uh, the, the Ryan Murray uh, accommodation tells me that we're capable of doing rational things again, and we ought to be trying. And there's nothing more rational for the economy, frankly. It's good for the economy to keep extended unemployment benefits. And there's nothing more humane. Why would we accept that our fellow citizens should lose their homes and, frankly, be out on the street and homeless just because unemployment benefits expired before they could find a job because everybody who's getting benefits is required to be looking for a job while they're getting them. So in general, it sounds like we've got a pretty healthy housing uh, market coming back, which is good to hear. Um, I want to talk about some other commodities in our lightning round today. Uh, The lightning round is essentially quick insights to various asset classes and will be one of the focuses of our new podcast uh, to help investors actually decide what they want to do with their money. Um, this information comes from the World Business Academy as a nonprofit organization and is doing this literally as a public service. Uh, n- none of us gain financially, personally from this at all. We are just uh, getting this information out there to help you. Um, Ronaldo, I want to ask you some quick questions and have you answer. Essentially, we talked about housing prices, uh, or we talked about the housing market. What do you see specifically on housing prices in the next 12 months? Uh, across, the, across the board in the United States, on average, housing prices will go up and will be firm, meaning they won't be fluctuating, uh, and it'll be a steady but non-bubble rate of growth in price, but your home is going to grow in value in the next 12 months. And how about commercial real estate? Commercial real estate is going to go up faster in price than housing because uh, there's too too much excess commercial real estate on the market, so it hasn't been absorbed. As it begins to get absorbed in the first half or six months of 2014, it'll put upward pressure on commercial real estate rents. And therefore, uh, I'm expecting to see the commercial real estate market quite strong in the second half of the year, and perhaps as strong in, by the second quarter. What do you think about the inflation rate over the next 12 months? It's going to go up. Um, I think that Janet Yellen will tolerate more inflation than um, than Bernanke might have, and I think that's a good thing because I don't think she, the, the, the stock market believes she will back off of easing more slowly than Bernanke might have. Uh, but I think that's a good thing because she's alert to the fact that unemployment is a key thing. So she's looking much more, uh, and I think the market knows that and likes the fact that she's looking at unemployment as much as she's looking at inflation and probably a little bit more. So we're going to see an unemployment rate that's going to hit 6.5% uh, by the end of the first quarter, which I don't know if anybody else is predicting that by now, but I am. And that's the magic number for the Fed. They said they'd back off. And I think what she's going to telegraph is a slow backing off of easement, even easing, even as we drop from 65 to 63 to 62 to 6. So I, I can see 
it's possible we'll end up the year literally more than one percentage point below where we are today. And I might want to revise that and make it even more optimistic later in the year as I see what happens. But based on this Murray-Ryan deal getting done, which, by the way, I'm going to predict it does get done. I believe there are enough votes in the House. When, the, when Boehner agrees to take it to the floor, there will be enough Republicans and enough Democrats to come together to create a majority. In which case, because I'm assuming that will happen, uh, therefore I'm making this prediction. If it doesn't happen, of course, all bets are off, and I'll go back to the drawing board. Yep. Okay. Uh, what's your outlook in terms of U.S. GDP for 2014? Yeah. By the way, uh, the stock market may not continue up in all of 2014. It's at an all-time high right now. The S&P crossed over 1,800. Uh, and people need to know that there is um, that the stock market right now is priced way above historical averages. So the economy is going to have to kick in at a pretty good clip in order to justify those prices in the stock market. Uh, I continue to recommend to people they should be buying um, dividend-paying stocks in reputable companies, which are very strong, and in uh, Sunrise Industries. Um, that said, I think that there will be an increase, an uptick in gold. I don't think it's a big enough uptick coming yet that I want to recommend people buying it as an inflation hedge. We're not there yet. Stay tuned. I'll tell you when we get there. We're not there yet. Gold is still not going to be a giant win in the next certainly in the next month before our next podcast. Uh, as far as industrial metals, I think you're going to see firming in the first quarter. You're going to see firming some upward motion on copper prices and other prices of what we call industrial commodities. So when you're buying and selling stuff that you need to make buildings happen, you're going to see some additional firming and some upward price on prices, a uh, healthy market for commodities in, in 2014. Excellent. And did you have a GDP prediction for 2014? Yeah, I do. Um, I think that um, we're going we're gonna to end this year at about 2.1%. Uh, the fourth quarter says going to be a bit of a drag. Uh, my guess is that we will end the year next year at a run rate of 3.5%, which is very bullish GDP. So that will be a run rate by the end of the year. If you blend what I see as a somewhat weaker first quarter coming, well, certainly the fourth quarter is going to be weaker. We know that. And we know that the first quarter of next year won't be as strong as the second, third, and fourth quarters of next year. So I'm going to say that uh, on average, I'll be surprised, really surprised, if we do less than 2.5 to 2.6 GDP growth in the country. And for people like my friend Hazel Henderson, who think that GDP is not the proper statistic to be looking at, what I would say is to translate that into a, into a comment by me that the economy will be growing at roughly 35% quicker pace next year than this year. Great. Excellent. Um, well, Ronaldo, we're getting towards the end of the show, but uh, something important happened this week, and he, uh, we, we lost a great leader in the world, uh, Nelson Mandela, and I wanted to see if you had some thoughts about his passing to share. Yeah, I really do, and I want to contrast these to Jamie Dimon, which I spoke about earlier in the show. So Jamie Dimon is the representative of uh, the greed is good Gordon Gecko philosophy, of life. Take what you can and the hell with the other guy. That was that's Jamie Dimon, that's Gordon Gecko in the movie. Nelson Mandela was the exact opposite. People who know me well know that I've been talking about the end of Homo sapiens sapiens as a human species. I believe that species like 32 prior species is going to is is, is gone, meaning those who are left will die off and they won't be replaced. And the new species that has arisen some of us call, I call, Homo noeticus. So Homo sapiens sapiens was the man or woman who knows that they know. 
So reflective consciousness. I believe Homo noeticus is now going to supersede and there will be no Homo sapiens sapiens left on the planet within 100 years or less. And what Homo noeticus is, it's the man or woman who knows that they know, that's reflective consciousness, and what they know is that we are one, so-called unitary consciousness. So if you take the quote that I love by Nelson Mandela, he said, there is no passion to be found playing small in settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. I would say the challenge is, for all of you who are sitting on the fence and haven't decided whether you want to be reflective consciousness or you want to be universal consciousness, if you really are ready to embrace that we have only one planet, that, it, that we are a part of an environmental system globally called Gaia sometimes, which we're a small part of, but we're a key part, but we have to live in harmony sustainably with our environment. If you're willing to believe that what happens to the least of our brethren happens to us, if when you see someone who's homeless, you see that is your problem, not their problem. If you can relate to the poem uh, by John Donne that no man or woman is an island alone unto himself complete, so don't ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for these. If you can believe and see in yourself that you aren't going to be fixed, you're not going to solve your problems unless you can help everybody else solve them too. In other words, we're all in this together. If you can see that and you can live by that every day, you're homo noeticus. You're the new species. And the way that I think Mandela captured that, that the incentive to become homo noeticus is how I'd like to end the show. Because I believe that Nelson Mandela was the passing of one of the great homo noeticuses. Um, there have been others that preceded him. I would call Gandhi a homo noeticus. I would say Jesus, probably homo noeticus. I would say Buddha, clearly homo noeticus. So there are people who have individually preceded, but we've never gone through a change before where all of us are being called to become homo noeticus, this transformational journey. And so the way I would end the program is by quoting Mandela, who was such a great man for all the reasons you've heard on television, for all the things you know about his life, the 27 years he was imprisoned, coming out knowing that the key issue for him was to be able to forgive, not to get even. For a man who launched a country that could have gone into a black-white bloodbath, who dismantled apartheid and did it in a way that inspired every single leader, even in totalitarian states, to reconsider their position, and in democratic states, to give us a thing to rise and hold up as a target worth achieving. And to have the President of the United States, Barack Obama, say, this was the man who first affected me, so I went into politics. This was my great awakening. And to m most people, if not 80% of South Africans, that was true. He was their awakening. I'm so grateful that Barbara Nussbaum, a longtime member of the Academy for many, many, for at least a couple decades now, called me from South Africa the day of the funeral to share with me her joy, to report to me and the Academy what was happening in the country at the level of individual human beings, black, white, even brown, because there's a lot of Indians there as well. And, and, and her report of those events was so stirring and touching to me. We spent about 40 minutes on the phone talking about it. And her experience of a wave of love and celebration, and how even in, with all the craziness that's happened to South Africa since Mandela turned over the presidency, how she feels part of a wave of the future, and how Nelson Mandela's funeral actually was a cause of universal celebration, if you noticed on the television. So she was sharing with me why that was. And I believe it was because they understood, without knowing the words, that he was pointing them towards and inviting them to become homo noeticus. And here's how he said it. He said, for to be free, 
is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. For to be free, it is not merely enough for me, Nelson Mandela, to walk out of jail and cast off my chains after 27 years, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of all others. That would include whites, that includes blacks, it includes browns and yellows and reds and greens, and any other color you can come up with that's a human being. The key thing is, it means that each of us are, in fact, our brother's keeper. We are our own brothers and sisters. And if we live by that, as the Academy has long espoused, we will create an era of prosperity the world has never even imagined before, let alone ever experienced. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thanks, Ronaldo. And on behalf of the World Business Academy, thank you for joining us. Uh, please come to our website at worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows and tune in next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. Until then, thank you for listening, and please do remember to share this link.